Section 4. Everything is buggy. What Intel gives, Microsoft takes away. As the summer of 1989 turned to fall, the shipment of Windows 3.0 was looming. When not working on a Mac product or trying to get OS 2 stable for daily use, most of us in apps were dealing with getting something to work on Windows and reporting bugs back to the Windows team. Far away in systems, Windows, what started as a side project, now a full team of people grinding away on a death march to get Windows 3.0 done. Typically, in those days, this period of heightened work hours and intense cycles of bug fixing marked the last months of any project. The cafeterias were not always open for dinner, ushering in a mostly systems tradition of ship meals, featuring a buffet much fancier than the cafeteria offered. The idea of serving dinner as part of a routine death march became a decidedly systems approach that was so formalized it later became a budgeted line item, as I would learn when I joined Windows. Windows 3.0 was still months from shipping, but the activity was going on around the clock. The online version has an April 1990 InfoWorld story, Microsoft set on the May 22nd unveiling of Windows 3.0. Vendors eagerly await long-delayed update. Windows was in systems, which was a big dog half of Microsoft. While the history of the company was in languages where BASIC and other tools were made, the center, and at the time the economic engine of the company, was systems, where MS-DOS was made. MS-DOS was a brilliant product born out of a commitment by IBM to deliver a product that didn't exist and yet wasn't under development. It was subsequently acquired and modified to meet the deadline with a twist that Microsoft was free to license the product to other computer companies. In other words, while IBM was the first contract for MS-DOS, it was not exclusive. Out of that, the entire PC industry was created. And not for one second was that lost on the systems people. In those first early days, Microsoft felt like two different companies, apps and systems. A buzzword in modern business, these two cultures could not have been more different. At least that's what I was led to believe by listening to stories at lunch. Even though the company was made up of only about 3,500 people with half in Redmond, I had not yet met anyone in systems. While I could have easily walked a few hundred feet over to the buildings where they occupied, that wasn't something that people did. Apps and systems didn't really intermingle. The one thing we knew about systems, despite the anonymity, was that as buggy and late as apps products were, the systems products, I was informed, were buggier and later. Windows 3.0 was coming down to the wire. There were no real secrets. Many people had builds and were installing the product, and weekly industry tabloids, InfoWorld and PC Week, were tracking the latest rumors, test releases, and gossip. The actual delivery date was not well known, not by the team or anyone else, until very close to the announcement of that date. There's a 1999 InfoWorld article in the online version that says there's a much-improved beta and a separate article on the new release of Excel for Windows. From the time I arrived at Microsoft and installed that first build in ADC in the summer, the launch of Windows 3.0 was always real soon now, often abbreviated RSN in snarky email. That had no impact at all on the enthusiasm as the buzz that Windows 3.0 would be a breakthrough product was pervasive through the hallways. The industry was equally anxious for what appeared to be a showdown across a plethora of operating systems, including MS-DOS, Windows, OS2, and Macintosh. In hindsight, it was easy to make fun of the fact that everything seemed late and hardly worked. The entire industry was like that. From the earliest days of PCs, none of us knew anything else. The expression vaporware was commonly used to refer to software that was well-known and frequently discussed, but not yet shipping. 
The phrase was first used as far back as 1983 by Esther Dyson in the industry thought-leading newsletter Release 1.0. In some sense, most everything was vapor. I remember sitting in my ADC office having just received a Goldman Sachs analyst report on Microsoft from the library. In the report was a table of all of our company's products under development and their estimated ship dates. The dates were far in the future and all wrong by months or even years. The online version has a copy of that first release.0 newsletter from November 1983 that talks about vaporware. Good ideas, incompletely implemented, was the description. In fairness, it was challenging to set, simply get non-trivial product built, have it work on a wide variety of PC configurations that existed, and then ship it in a dozen languages. That's because there was no internet, no diagnostics or telemetry, and anything that went wrong simply crashed the whole computer, requiring a power cycle. And most importantly, the field of software engineering was nascent to the point of not really having the institutional knowledge of building and testing software for mass distribution. Before the PC, there were many complex systems, but each one was custom and staffed by full-time people to keep it running. PCs were different. Everything was new. And that was before the complexity of coding for a graphical interface like Windows and Macintosh. One of the biggest differences with PCs was that the PC operating system ran in such a way, which was called real mode compared to protected mode that was introduced later in Windows and still later in Macintosh, that any bug in a program generally did one of two things, but probably both. First, for certain, whatever file was open and being edited probably became corrupt and data was lost. That was a heart-stopping given. Second, there was a good chance that the crashing program also caused the whole computer to crash, hang, or otherwise stop working. Thus, the cardinal rules of early PC era were born. First, frequently save work and make backup copies. Second, if something goes wrong, you're going to reboot the whole machine. I learned this firsthand too many times. In college, when I operated on computers in the lab, an entire shift could often be consumed by trying to help a classmate salvage the remains of a term paper off of a floppy drive after a crash. Those were the most horrific bugs because work was lost that people assumed they were saving. Such were early PCs and Macs. Because of this, it was extraordinarily superhuman to even get programs working in the first place. By definition, a mistake in the code caused everything on the computer to stop working, including the tools being used to diagnose and debug the problem. The best programmers like Dwayne Campbell, email Dwayne C, and my manager, Scott Ra, and others were able to figure out how to step through each instruction carefully and monitor whole blocks of memory for changes at the lower levels to figure out what was going on. Dwayne Campbell was already a legendary programmer within the ranks, a tech lead, as I would learn. He was a few years older, but seemed more grown up simply because he was married and had a maturity level that most of us lacked. Dwayne had a slight Southern accent, having grown up in rural Tennessee and speaking a tempo I was familiar with from the people I grew up with in Florida. He was a musician, but also studied computer science at the University of Tennessee. He was one of the earliest members of the MS-DOS applications team and a key contributor to Word. He was also one of the kindest and most thoughtful leaders I'd ever worked with. The most difficult bugs were those that crossed from the application into the operating system. That money took knowledge of not only your own code, but also code in MS-DOS and probably code from a video or print driver as well. Lunchtime discussions often dove deep into the details of bugs and the techniques used to find the mistake. And almost always the mistake is one of a small number of common flaws, 
such as forgetting to check for null pointers in code or using variables that had not been initialized. The tools and techniques that were being developed across the engineers at Microsoft to build software at scale and to make reliable products proved to be a competitive advantage. That was an important fact. It was state of the art. In the 1990s saw an incredible advance in building software at scale, and no company did that better than Microsoft. Microsoft's ubiquity and scale did not allow for gloating or even acknowledging the progress, but it would have been deserved. The world outside of Microsoft was different. Outside, of the computing landscape was marked by a period of extreme heterogeneity. While IBM lorded over the PC itself, which dominated business, Compaq and Dell were becoming leaders in making PC clones and even racing ahead of IBM in areas like portables and using the latest Intel chips. Apple Macintosh was not viewed as a viable alternative in business, but captured the hearts and minds of students, educators, and creatives. While Microsoft was busy making MS-DOS and Windows 3.0 and was already shipping Windows 2 with Excel, it was also deep in a partnership with IBM to develop OS 2, a much more sophisticated and reliable, aka protected mode, operating system, and also competitor to Windows. From the outside, Microsoft looked confused, or at least lacking a clear strategy. Caught in the middle were companies trying to bring software products to market. Which operating system would they come to rely on for their products? Some viewed the duality of Windows versus OS 2 as an elaborate scheme by Microsoft to distract potential future competitors. The age-old conspiracy theory, which lacked any foundation other than IBM's poor execution, was that this was some sort of head fake to distract developers with OS 2 while Microsoft could come to dominate apps. The partnership with IBM was the highest priority, but it just wasn't working out well. The ever-present industry trade magazine seemed to not miss a beat over the rift between Microsoft and IBM. The raging debate over the cost and benefits of moving to a full 32-bit operating system, specifically OS 2, was front and center, even though OS 2 for 16 bits had not taken off at all. This put Windows 3.0 at a perception disadvantage, as it was a 16-bit operating system that could take advantage of 32-bit processors. The industry disliked this like lack of purity, but love the complexity of the debate. Something I learned early is just how much the PC era was marked by bringing complexity front and center to debates that had little to do with customers, but served to keep analysts and pundits busy. Our job was to hide complexity, but it seemed others were constantly surfacing it. Though to be fair, we did our share of talking complexity, not usually passing up a chance to demonstrate our nerd credentials. The online version has a June 1990 Byte magazine cover, which was a month after the Windows 3.0 launch, showing the entirely typical coverage of Windows versus OS 2. Owing to the lead time, the review was done with a pre-release code of Windows 3. More importantly for customers, there was the constant coverage of quality problems with software and hardware. If the programs were not slow, they took too much memory or hard drive space. At the same time, every week seemed to bring more news of faster processors, hoping to finally make yesterday's software fast enough to use today. Except we were busy building more software, requiring even faster processors and more memory. We were under constant pressure to build software that ran on PCs customers had, while also taking advantage of the latest processor and hardware. In hindsight, what saved us all was that at any given time, the installed base of PCs, the number of existing PCs in use, was being dwarfed by the run rate of new PCs, PCs sold to new customers or to replace those older PCs. 
The velocity of this dynamic was key to our ability to constantly ship software that outstripped the PCs people already owned. The industry saying was something along the lines of, what Intel gives, Microsoft takes away, in reference to the increasing hardware capabilities constantly outstripped by more demanding software. The early and successful Microsoft strategy of developing applications that ran on multiple platforms remained the cornerstone of apps. Not only, only now apps was busy enough just developing for Microsoft's own platforms, consisting of the mature MS-DOS, where apps never really gained the lead, the nascent Windows that few were buying yet, and the non-existent, mostly non-functional, but strategically critical OS 2. And then the monster moneymaker Macintosh that was competing with all of those. As crazy as the strategy or lack thereof seemed to the press and Wall Street, it was even more taxing us for us developers and apps. Cross-platform development was not only impactful, impractical, but the answer to a question no single customer had on their own. Yet that did not stop the search for a magical technical solution, and thus my first real programming work. Microsoft, Bilgey in particular, always believed there was a software solution to any problem if enough IQ was applied. Bilgey used IQ as an expression of currency, such as how much IQ is in that group, or he brings a lot of IQ to the problem. This optimism and faith in IQ was a gift to Microsoft but also caused a lot of problems because not every problem required a high IQ solution. And those with high IQ could not always apply it in a practical matter. Finding such a magical solution to cross-platform was my first project and the first project of our new team.